Well, good morning, and thank you for inviting me to come and speak to you. Your theme this week is human, and by way of introduction, I am, by biology, a human, so I can speak to you from personal experience. You've been given some of my professional credentials. When I'm not doing those things, I'm a school governor, a charity trustee, I love to swim, cycle, run, wish I was doing that now, uh, in this lovely location. And uh, in the 50 years of my life thus far, I've held all of that in tension. And it's a tension because, like you, I'm human. Speaking at such an august event as Keswick to such an impressive audience, I feel it necessary to emphasize that I am, by profession, a lawyer, not a theologian. I don't say that as an excuse, but rather to give a context to my reflections. I began studying law as an undergraduate 30 years ago, and that's necessarily impacted the way I see things and the way I think. I don't think that invalidates my theological reflections on the basis that all followers of Christ are theologians to some extent. So I'm an amateur theologian, and I formally acknowledge that limitation. As I've reflected on the invitation to speak to you here today, I've considered what it is that I should be aiming at. I've pondered a few possibilities. Some of you may want to know what modern slavery actually looks like. What's it like in the 21st century where it happens and what is being done about it? And that would mean I need to give you some factual details, a bit like a documentary. Or you may be reflecting on the numerous biblical references to slavery, asking how the biblical understanding of justice bears upon slavery, perhaps asking why Jesus, nor Paul, nor the church at large fought for abolition until the late 17th century. That would require asking some difficult questions of the Bible, of God, and of the church. Or perhaps you may be asking what we're doing about modern slavery now, or even what you specifically could be doing. And that would involve some signposting towards opportunities to get involved. And I'm guessing that among you there are those who would like to focus more on one or other of those areas, and there are probably many more of you who would much rather I was talking from a different angle altogether. But I've got a limited amount of time. And I fully expect that I'm going to leave you here with more questions than I can answer. And that is, in fact, what I hope to achieve. I want to leave you asking some difficult questions about the Bible, about God, and about the church. And I want to leave you asking those questions with complete confidence that the Holy Spirit will inspire you to respond with compassion with kindness, and with conviction. I trust that the Holy Spirit is going to breathe the life breath of God into you as you ponder these things, and as you consider how God may be calling you to respond. And let's be clear, it's not God's call on my life, or the life of anyone else that should be your primary concern today. I encourage you to keep asking over the next hour and beyond What is the Lord saying to you about slavery? Now, that may fill you with dread. And I would have failed this morning if I leave anyone going away from here feeling guilty 
or condemned that you're not doing what you should be doing. I think the church perhaps does that a little too often. What I hope and pray is that you leave more informed, more aware, and hopefully more able to seek out opportunities to follow where God is leading you on this issue. And to be clear from the outset, he may not be leading you very far. Probably for many of you, you will leave more informed and no more. And that's okay. But there might be some of you, one or two of you, for whom this will be a very important hour. You may hear something that might move you to change your life in a big way. I hope that if that is you, you do it because you've received a conviction and a love and a guidance from the Lord. And as for the rest of you, you're off the hook. No guilt, no condemnation, just love. So off we go. Humans and justice. I'd like to begin with scripture and the centrality of justice at the heart of God, the heart of the universe, and therefore at the heart of each of us as humans. Justice is a fundamental foundation of the creation of which we're part. And I'm slightly embarrassed that I was 33 years old before I understood the centrality of justice to my Christian faith. In 2006, I underwent high-dose chemotherapy and an autologous stem cell transplant for a recurrence of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I'd been married for seven years, and I had two young children. I was warned that while the risk of death from the treatment was low, it was real. My consultant apologized that the treatment was harsh, a proverbial sledgehammer to crack a malignant nut, but he admitted that medical science currently knew no better way to try and kill the cancer. He expressed the hope that in years to come, high-dose chemotherapy would be looked back on rather the way that we look at hacksaw amputations in years gone by. But unfortunately for now, it's all we've got. The treatment was indeed as bad as anticipated, but obviously I didn't die, and it took me some months to recover. And I tell you that because it gives context to what happened next. In early 2007, I attended an anti-slavery presentation at a church in London. Upon reflection, I can freely admit and acknowledge that I was physically and emotionally weak at the time. I was vulnerable. Through my regular visits to the Royal Marsden, the treatment, I had become part of and acquainted with a community of suffering, a community with whom I had little acquaintance and even less identification beforehand. But strangely, that cancer-induced vulnerability was a part, dare I say, a necessary part of God's revelation to me. Since then, I've often asked myself, have I remained vulnerable? Vulnerable to compassion, the ability to suffer with those who suffer. I think making ourselves vulnerable is a crucial step in understanding and responding to God's heart for justice. That may mean making ourselves emotionally, physically, socially, financially vulnerable. A demanding, but dare I say, necessary part of the journey. 
When I came home after that event in the church in London, my wife could see that something had changed in me. And with the benefit of hindsight, I can confirm that, as usual, she was right. As I reflect on what changed in 2007, I think I can say that I fundamentally had glimpsed the horror and magnitude of modern slavery. I'd begun to appreciate that modern slavery was a clear violation of God's created order. But perhaps most significantly for me, I'd begun to realize that just as doctors can be God's chosen ministers to the sick, water engineers can be God's chosen ministers to those in drought, diplomats, God's chosen ministers to those who need peace. As a lawyer, I could be God's chosen minister to those in slavery. And it was this revelation that opened up a whole new dimension to my faith in God. I discovered and will share with you the understanding of justice at the heart of God. And therefore at the heart of every legal professional as ministers of justice. I am a minister of justice, both human and divinely called. So what is divine justice? Both in the Old Testament, the well-known verse Micah 6.8, and in the New Testament, Matthew 23.23, 23, we see examples of God's three-point manifesto for humans. And justice is right there in both of them. Micah 6.8, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I'd like to draw a couple of points out of that well-known verse. Read carefully the context of the word justice. It is very specifically active. Do justice, or in other translations, act justly. The importance of the point can be made if you think about the opposite, justice in the passive. It's meaningless. Just thinking about justice, just hypothesizing about justice, just having justice on your statutes but not bothering to enforce it. The distinction between active and passive justice is crucial to our understanding and discernment of how to be God's ministers of justice, and we'll come back to that. Let's look at the New Testament, Matthew 20, 23, 23. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but... You ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Before we move on, and as I had grown accustomed to do, to tut at the legal absurdity of the Pharisees, just think about it. Do any of us ever use a calculator or a piece of paper to look at our salary, our bonus, and work out what we should tithe? I do. And that's all the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus, in fact, approved and arguably expected no less. But that was their mistake. That was not their mistake. The but comes afterwards. But you ignore the weightier and more important matters of the law. Diligence to tithing is good, but by no means enough if you do not take seriously the issues of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It's a big challenge. How seriously do we take justice, mercy, and faithfulness? 
because Jesus was really clear about how important they are. They are the more important and weightier matters. And again, justice is there in the top three. But what does justice mean? I've taken some of the following from someone who knows more about this than me. I'm a lawyer, not a biblical scholar, and so is this part of my talk I'm unashamedly calling an expert witness in the form of Tim Keller. If you go and buy generous justice, you'll see where I got it from. Let me begin by suggesting a definition for justice as a springboard. Justice has to do with the exercise of power and authority according to God's standards of holiness and moral excellence. Justice is about right relationships between people, about regulating imbalances of power and authority in pursuit of fairness. To understand that better, I'd like to introduce you to the first of two Hebrew words, mishpat. The most commonly used Hebrew word for, in scripture for justice Mishpat means justice, as in to treat people equitably. Note, not equally, but equitably or fairly. Mishpat also means justice, as in the rule of law. So, in Leviticus 24, 22, having the same mishpat for the foreigner as for the native means applying the same law, the same rule of law, to them both. As we might say, it's not one law for the rich, one for the poor. Mishpat also means bringing about the correct punishment under the law, equitably, fairly. The same punishment regardless of race, status, wealth. Also, finally, mishpat means giving people their rights, which would include not just due punishment, but also due provision, care, protection to all people equitably and fairly. This understanding of justice as an active means to assistance is illuminated in Scripture. Psalm 146. He upholds the cause, the mishpat, the rule of law of the oppressed. God is concerned that the protection and provision of the law is available to all, particularly those who are oppressed by others. God's justice requires that it extends out of the pages of the Jewish law, the Torah, into the lives of those who need protection. Deuteronomy 10:17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause, the mishpat, of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the alien, giving them food and clothing. Again, we see God's concern that the protections and provisions enshrined in law are delivered without bribery or self-interest to all those who need them. What I hope you're seeing through this is that the mandate to do justice has a very necessary context. It takes place by one human towards another human in society. You cannot do justice in isolation. 
Justice only has meaning in societies where there is more than one person because justice is all about bringing fairness to bear upon relationships between people. If you're not sure about that, just imagine trying to do justice alone on a desert island. Doesn't work. Has no place there. So just to recap, justice, mishpat, the rule of law, is about what we do to bring about right relationships, the right use of power in pursuit of God's standards of fairness delivered equitably and impartially. Our understanding of how God's justice is meant to play out in the world is reinforced by understanding another, the second Hebrew word, tzedekah. The word is often translated as being righteous, but it also carries with it the meaning of being just, or as Alec Matea put it, right with God and therefore committed to putting right all other relationships. This word emphasizes the definition of justice in the sense of regulating imbalances of power between humans in pursuit of fairness. We could compare the two words, mishpat and tzedekah, and describe their interaction in this way. If tzedekah were prevalent in the world, i.e. everyone acted fairly to everyone else, we wouldn't need mishpat, the mechanism for putting right unfairness. But since Sadiqa is far from prevalent, there is injustice in the world, Mishpat, the bringing of justice, is absolutely necessary. That doesn't mean that we give up on Sadiqa. No, we still pursue it. But in recognition of the reality of the state of the world, we need to administer Mishpat as well. As Tim Keller suggests, when those two words come together, and he has counted them doing so in over, on over 30 uh, occasions in the Bible, his best translation of them working together is social justice. Try this translation of Jeremiah 9:23. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. That is to say, do not let those forms of power hold sway. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, mishpat, righteousness, siddiqa, that is social justice on earth. For in that I delight, declares the Lord. But it's in this context of a world where Sadiqa is wanting, a world where we have to do mishpat, that we encounter the harsh reality that although we are to administer justice fairly, injustice is not fairly distributed. Because to quote the philosopher Nicholas Wilsonsdorf, although rich people can be treated unjustly, it is a simple fact that the lower classes, by which he means the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the alien and the poor, are disproportionately vulnerable and victims of injustice. It was in this context that the Latin, the Latin American theologian, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, spoke of God's preferential option for the poor. That's to say God's got favorites. 
Now, God is not unjust. He's not unfair. But the preferential option for the poor recognizes that the work of justice, mishpat, needs to be focused on those for whom tzedakah is disproportionately lacking. But I am now in danger of doing exactly what I enjoined us not to do, to theorize, pontificate, and remain in a world of justice in the abstract. And as long as I do so, the concept will remain fairly simple. But I'm now going to turn to the world, the real world of humans. And it's not necessarily as simple or as pretty. It quite quickly becomes both complex and perplexing. The history of slavery in the church. Let's begin with Jesus. Why didn't Jesus incite a revolt? and preach emancipation and abolition like Alardo Equiano, Frederick Douglass, and William Wilberforce did? Why was slavery not abolished in the British Empire until the 1st of August, 1834, and in the US until the 1st of January, 1863? And why was the UK Parliament still having to pass a modern slavery act in 2015? I think the answer is quite straightforward. Jesus knew that however evil slavery was, and it certainly was, first century Palestine was not ready to hear the call to the abolition of slavery. The reality was that when Jesus was walking around Palestine, slavery was the embedded social reality for millions of people across the Roman Empire and beyond. And that part of the world where he lived was not ready to abolish slavery. We can test that theory by looking at the teaching of the 4th century bishop, Gregory of Nyssa, who taught that the institution of slavery was a violation of a human being's innate worth and therefore an offense against God. He brilliantly constructed this argument, the first ever comprehensive argument to challenge the institution of slavery based upon Christian teaching, appealing to the fact that every human being is made in the image of God. And his theory was roundly rejected by the church in the fourth century. Neither the world nor the church was ready. Abolition's time had not yet come. But slavery wasn't the only problem. Neither Jesus nor Paul advocated for safeguarding procedures in the early church, nor universal health care, nor for food allergy labels on the street food outlets, of which there were many in first century Palestine. And that's not to say that any of those things is, should have been there. On the contrary, all of those safeguarding, food allergy labels, universal health care, they're all good. They're all manifestations of God's kingdom. But it's probably fair to say that first century Palestine wasn't ready for them. So let's be careful not to form an unfair judgment based purely on what Jesus and Paul didn't say. Abolition's time had not yet come. If it had, I have absolutely no doubt that Jesus would have led the movement, just as some of God's people have led the movements 1,800 years later and have been instrumental and are instrumental in fighting slavery now. Jesus and Paul expressed their love for everyone, including slaves. But they did it differently. 
Jesus' ministry was profoundly subversive of the entire world order, which included slavery, showing God's love for everyone in direct conflict with the contemporary religion, society, and empire. Paul spoke prophetically in Galatians of there being no slavery in the kingdom of God. In Ephesians, having told slaves how to behave towards their masters, his instruction to slave masters was radical equality. Masters, do the same to your slaves because both of you have the same master in heaven and with him there is no partiality. And in the letter to Colossians, Paul delivered an equally challenging teaching of justice and fairness. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. That was perhaps radical enough for the time. But as I said, none of that is to say that slavery in the first century was okay. It was certainly not okay. And yet, neither was child abuse, the lack of universal health care, or people dying of food allergies. Slavery never was and never will be anything less than horrific. I've read some biblical commentaries that have tried to play down the horror of slavery to explain why Jesus didn't speak more vehemently against it. I think it's wrong to try and do that. Slavery is and always has been truly horrendous. Yes, some slaves are made bosses over other slaves, and for them, life is perhaps not as bad. Some slaves may be treated comparatively well for a slave. Others may not complain of their circumstances, probably because they have been brainwashed, terrified, and know no better. That slaves have different experiences throughout history is indeed true. But every slave throughout history has been treated as less than they are to their creator God, to whom they like you and me, are a unique, valued, beloved human made in the divine image. The tall, the short, the black, the white, the poor, the rich, the intelligent, the fearful, the confident, the self-loathing, the the desperate, the wily, the gullible, the disabled, the fit, the obese, the sick. Every human being is made in God's image, and none should be treated as less than any other. Over the last 20 centuries, the church's understanding and response to the revelation of God regarding slavery has been mixed, somewhere between shameful and negligent at times. But before we, as followers of Christ, are tempted to identify ourselves with the abstract sense of righteousness, tzedekah, and conclude that the injustice of slavery is something that we would simply never condone, let's be a little bit more self-aware and open ourselves to the reality that the legacy of Christian faith in this regard, the legacy upon which our lives and society are built, is deeply problematic. Looking first at the origin of slavery, the church has been culpably complicit in laying the groundwork, investing in and reaping the rewards from slavery. The church commissioners uh, released a report earlier this year in which they acknowledged the direct links between their endowment, that is the financial backbone of the Church of England, uh, which is a fund of billions of pounds, the links between that and the transatlantic slave trade. 
from the formation of the Queen Anne's Bounty, which invested directly in transatlantic slavery through the South Sea Company, to donations received from benefactors like the now eponymous Edward Colston. The Church of England's finances have benefited from the enslavement of millions. The Church, as the Archbishop of Canterbury has humbly acknowledged, has been complicit in the contemporary consequences that centuries of enslavement have had on millions in the UK and around the world, historically and contemporaneously. We can fairly ask, where is the Sadiqa in the church that has been funded by the genocidal enslavement and murder of millions? That is a difficult question. In case you think I'm overstating the case, consider the words of the head of the church in the 15th century, Pope Nicholas V, who gave this explicit mandate to the great explorers of the time. And I quote, Invade, search out, capture and subjugate entire communities, reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, and apply and appropriate and convert to the use and profit of yourself and your successors in perpetuity their property and possessions. The Pope. The document was explicitly intended to assist, and I quote, the spread of the faith for which Christ our Lord shed his blood. Where is the Sadiqa? in a church which spreads the good news of God's love and forgiveness with such tyrannical inhumanity and cruelty. Whilst we celebrate the abolition of slavery in the British Empire 200 years ago, we often forget how it was achieved. The British Parliament did not simply declare slaves to be free. In 1834, the British government paid £20 million to thousands of slave owners to buy back their slaves, treating them, therefore, as property. The government debt taken on in 1834 was not fully repaid until 2015. Until then, that payment for human property was being paid by taxes, which some of you probably paid. Some of those taxes were paid by the very descendants of those who had been bought and sold hundreds of years before. They and we rightly ask, where is the Sadiqa that makes them pay for their ancestors' emancipation? More recently, we've celebrated 75 years since the Windrush arrived in England. We have heard afresh Numerous stories of rejection, hatred on the arrival of those who were invited to help rebuild the nation after World War II. We continue to hear how many of the brave immigrants and their descendants are still living in communities systematically disadvantaged by institutional racism, while our nation continues to benefit from the skills and labor of those same people. What Sadiqa invites people to help rebuild their nation, then rejects, disowns, and even expels those same people and their descendants from the country they came to help. But before we despair, I tell these stories not to paralyze us with shame and guilt. As I said at the beginning, there's no condemnation, there is no guilt. 
I tell these stories to help orient us appropriately to the challenge at hand with remorse, with repentance, with humility. In short, with vulnerability. And in that spirit, we can recognize that our legacy is not all bad. Sitting here today, we can admit the failures of our forebears and recognize the consequences of their actions. And we can pray that our contemporary appreciation of God's revelation of himself will continue to increase, being written daily on our hearts by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And by that revelation, today, we are in no doubt that slavery and its legacy are wrong and that we cannot sit by and let it continue with impunity. Our understanding of every human's innate value is demonstrated by the fact that while we were still a long way off, Christ died for each one of us, every single human being on the basis that God's love does not distinguish between male, female, or non-binary, Greek, Jew, or Muslim, black, white, or mixed race, slave, free, or those tarnished by their passive acquiescence in slavery. There is no distinction. There is no partiality. Christ died for all. Paul was right. There is no place for slavery in God's kingdom, neither on earth nor in heaven. Bishop Gregory of Nyssa was right that the treatment by one person of another as property is a violation of the dignity bestowed on every person by their creator. Frederick Douglass, Alado Equiano, William Wilberforce, Abraham Lincoln, they were all right, and so was the UK Parliament when it passed the Modern Slavery Act in 2015. Therefore, it's unsurprising, as I have found, that the contemporary battle to bring slavery, uh, to bring freedom to slaves around the world is a battle in which God is very involved. And those who sign up quickly find that God is at the head of the army. Why? Because justice is at the heart of God. And we are called to do justice. Because where Sadiqah is lacking... We, God's vulnerable, humble ministers of justice, are uniquely placed to bring mishpat. So I'll turn to the final part of my talk and look at what slavery in the 21st century looks like and what we can do about it. Having recovered from lymphoma and its treatment, having begun to learn about modern slavery in 2007, I felt called to do something in response. I felt called to use my skills as a lawyer to be a minister of justice. I started where you should start, close to home. I researched various aspects of modern slavery, and I found some very close to home, by which I mean in my kitchen, specifically chocolate. So, with a couple of friends, I contacted Cadbury's and began a conversation with them which lasted two years. We gathered evidence which we presented to them, asking them to reflect upon their inadequate response to the prevalence of of exploitative child labor and slavery in their cocoa supply chain. We began this conversation and continued it with their corporate social responsibility directors, 
And in the meantime, while the conversation was ongoing, I spoke at primary schools, secondary schools, churches, businesses, to MPs, civil servants, anywhere that would have me to raise awareness of the fact that there was far too much slavery in the cocoa supply chain. And in 2009, two years later, Cadbury's agreed to begin producing fair trade dairy milk. And I took my daughter to Cadbury's world to celebrate. <laughs> well, before you clap, unfortunately, Cadbury's was then bought out by Kraft, and they have reneged on various of their previous commitments. Progress is not always linear, and Sadiqa is lacking. But at the time, the success fed my passion, and it was about this time that I heard about International Justice Mission, IJM, the largest global anti-slavery organization. I was intrigued. I learned more about them. I even went to see one of their local projects in action. And then I applied for a job with them. They agreed to take me on, and in 2009, I took an extended sabbatical from my barrister's chambers in London and moved with my family to Bangalore. Now, before telling you about my work with IJM, I'd like to focus on what slavery looks like in the 21st century. It's only very rarely what it was before. Historically, it was chattel slavery, where one person was legally owned by another as their property. That's why the UK government bought people back, because people were considered property. That can't happen in most places in the world today. Instead, what does happen is people are treated as if they were property. Their humanity, their autonomy, their dignity, their self-determination, their freedom are all denied, stolen, sold, disposed of. And although the law does not permit them to be legal property, for them, that is frankly a distinction without a difference. Human trafficking is a part of modern slavery. Human trafficking is not the same as illegal immigration. Human trafficking is the movement of people for the purpose of exploitation. It's to do with the recruitment, movement, and retention of victims of modern slavery. It may be international, but it can be domestic. It could even be from one house to another in the same town, or even the same street. But most importantly, slavery is perpetrated by violence and threats of violence. Violence used to force victims to comply and associate non-compliance with the most basic emotions of pain and fear. Brace yourselves, it is shocking. Come with me now, or I'll hit you. You saw me electrocute them, didn't you? Put a foot out of line, and I'll do it to you. Do this, or I'll kill you, or rape you. Or maybe I'll kill her and rape you so you all know how serious I am. I'll do the same to your family if you ever disobey me. Sometimes, perhaps, the deception has a more attractive veneer. I'll help you get a great job. You can send money home to your family. But the job turns out to be in a brothel. I'll get you into the UK. You have a great life. But not as a waitress. Oh, and the travel costs, they're now a debt. 
that you'll never pay off. Take these drugs to this location, or I'll hand you over to the police as an illegal immigrant. Work in this nail bar, or I'll sell you to a pimp. Wash this car, or you will never see your passport again. Or do you want me to report you to the Home Office? Tell anyone, and you'll just never walk again. Do you really want to go back to being homeless? At least here you've got shelter, a job. No, you can't go home. Sleep here, in the shed, so you can work first thing tomorrow morning. Yes, we'll lock the door. Of course, we'll pay you next week, maybe. Don't talk to me about the minimum wage. It doesn't apply to you. And if you disagree, come outside and discuss it with my baseball bat. Now, get your little sister to come next time too, or I'll post this picture I took of you while you were drugged. You know I love you. Come on holiday with me. It'll be great. No, you can't go home. A girl like you is far too valuable to go home. That's what it looks like. Literally. Many of those examples I have just given are taken from first-hand evidence from IJM and other organisations. They are not made up. Slavery is truly terrifying. I have frequently seen and learned about people enduring a sustained level of terror that most of us could not even imagine enduring for a moment. So don't get the idea that modern slavery is slavery soft or slavery light. It is not. It is literally what you will have watched if you've seen Ten Years a Slave, and it's happening in the UK today, now. In South Asia, where I worked for IJM, slavery is predominantly tied up with debt bondage. People are given unregulated loans, which are then used to compel them to work for a particular person under the guise of paying it off. But the paying it off is a complete fiction. In reality, the debt is used to compel them to work. Without any prospect of freedom, and in fact, the debt never reduces. On the contrary, it increases, according not to truth or logic or mathematics, but the whim of the slave owner. His only motive is to compel free labour for as long as he can. The debt may not be real in a mathematical sense, but it's very real for the slaves that it traps. In many cases, it will still be there, and will endure from generation to generation. I have been involved in cases where entire communities of three generations or more of the same families are in debt bondage. When I joined IJM in Bangalore, our mission was to identify people in debt bondage, bring them to the attention of the local authorities, support those authorities in carrying out their statutory duties to rescue, rehabilitate the survivors, and prosecute the perpetrators. To bring mishpat. IJM never carries out rescue operations themselves. They only ever work through the local public bodies, striving to help those local authorities apply their local laws to do justice. IJM gathers the evidence and encourages the local authorities to take action. Crucially, we documented every case we were involved in with nerdish detail, and we did that. Because with every case, not only were we standing alongside individual people, families, humans, but at the same time we built up an increasingly high-resolution picture of the state of Sadika in that location. 
This enabled us to um, look at each individual case and also look at the big picture and identify what systematic changes needed to be made, what mishpat really looked like in that location. We would then advocate for those changes to be implemented, perhaps training, perhaps changing policy, perhaps implementing specific government strategies, or perhaps suggesting revised legislation. But despite delivering in such a highly professional and focused strategy, my experience of working in South Asia with International Justice Mission was that divine intervention was the rule, not the exception. God is there at the head of the army. When we had run out of words, of time, ideas, frankly of hope, we repeatedly saw God intervene to move people and bring freedom. We were privileged to be the ones through whom he chose to work, his ministers of justice in that location at that time, to show his love to those who'd never even heard of him, those who worshipped other gods, those whose lives were a mess of oppression and fear, of addiction, of tragedy, of love, of hope, of hopelessness. Even those who weren't sure they wanted to be rescued at all because they had no idea what rescue might look like. Unfortunately, along with local police and authorities, abolitionists meet opposition. Sometimes it's immediate and physical. The owner of the rice mill employing slaves quickly gathers a mob to attack the police and the local government officials, or perhaps to slip along to the judge later and bribe them. Sometimes the opposition is cultural. You may not like it, but it's okay to have child slaves in our culture. Well, you don't find the child slaves agreeing with that, or the United Nations. Some of you may have read uh, recently in the BBC about some specific opposition that IJM has received to its work in Ghana. Now's not the time to go into that in detail, but I am reassured uh, that IJM, an organization for whom I have worked, has an open mind to criticism, looks at it and responds. And if any of you have looked at that and been concerned, do come along to the IJM stand in the marketplace afterwards, and I'd be delighted, and so would others there, to talk to you about it. My time at IJM was an experience of humble ministers of justice, open to criticism, taking on board allegations of impropriety, and looking at them with vulnerability and honesty. IJM also works in the Philippines, where many children are becoming victims of online sexual abuse. Children some far younger than you or I would dare to imagine are repeatedly abused in the Philippines for the sexual gratification of online viewers around the world. The Philippines is the largest known source of these images, live videos, and live streams. The UK is the world's third largest consumer. IJM's record of reducing similar forms of abuse in the Philippines, as independently verified, is impressive. Sex trafficking has plummeted between 75 and 86% in the cities where IJM has worked. But there are many people in the Philippines and elsewhere who make a lot of money from this vast network of abuse, and they don't like it when God brings mishpat their way. In Southeast Asia... 
IJM work with hundreds of people forced into online scamming. People are recruited and forced to scam others on the other side of the world through emails, texts, and phone calls, facing the kind of violence and abuse and threats I referred to earlier if they don't comply. In Romania, IJM has identified hundreds of vulnerable refugees from Ukraine who are being exploited and trafficked many to the UK. And IJM is actively involved in supporting the cross-border prosecutions and rehabilitation of survivors. But unsurprisingly, there are those who profit from this trade and they fight back when Mishpat comes. In the UK, modern slavery is found in all walks of life. Homeless hostels frequented by slave masters, uh, recruiting cheap labor for building work, laying drives, patios, building walls, mixing concrete. Young boys forced to traffic drugs from cities across the country known as county lines. There's a phenomenon of young Vietnamese children being trafficked to the UK to grow cannabis in private houses. Women are made to work in nail bars. Girls from Eastern Europe lured, kidnapped to come to the UK to meet the sexual demands of British men. Some people find themselves working in car washes to pay off the fees that they were paid to get to the UK. But slaves have also been found in a UK factory which makes mattresses for John Lewis and another that packs eggs for Waitrose. There are UK fishing boats where slaves on board haven't seen the shore for months or even years. People are drawn into slavery entirely unwittingly. Others make bad choices. Born out of ignorance, poverty, addiction, desperation, fear. But they are all humans. All God's dearly beloved children, and God does not discriminate. As a result of the work that I did with IJM, I gained some experience and expertise to play part in the conceiving and drafting of the Modern Slavery Act. That's another story, uh, which I don't have enough time for this morning, but which shows how God uses his ministers of justice at the forefront of the contemporary fight against slavery. Many people are involved in that fight, not just IJM. UK government, as I said, has been at the forefront passing the Modern Slavery Act. And that act is now being replicated around the world. Modern slavery has become a recognized priority of the National Crime Agency. Police forces are now being trained to recognize it and treat victims of crime. Last week, there was the first conviction ever of someone being held in slavery in the UK. Businesses are being compelled to examine their local and global supply chains to report upon the risks of modern slavery and state what steps they're taking to address those risks. The population at large is more aware of modern slavery than it was a decade ago, although there's still much work to be done. Numerous charities and community groups are responding to modern slavery in their locality by lobbying parliament, local authorities, businesses to take their responsibilities seriously by reporting suspicious activity to the Modern Slavery Helpline, by providing, staffing, volunteering at safe houses for survivors, helping former slaves through the legal process of formal recognition and the much longer process of recovery and restoration. So I want to conclude by asking you this question. Ask yourself, what am I called to do? On one level, the answer is quite easy. Act justly. Do 
justice. That means use your influence, whatever it is, your words, your consumer choices, your time, your heart, to do justice wherever you can. Don't just think about it. Do it. Doing justice is ensuring that we use the power we have fairly towards others. And we're beginning to understand what that means, not just to those whom we know, who we see closely, but those on the other side of the world as well. My carbon footprint, the gadgets I own, the consumer choices I make, affect people globally. The prospect of your global influence might just as easily freak you out as it does empower you, but take heart. Jesus walked on earth for about 30 years. He didn't abolish slavery, but what he did was everything that his father asked of him. No less and no more. So what is God asking of you? Will you pray? Will you give? What will you do? Where will you go? Is the Lord holding out one talent or ten? Remember, there's no guilt, there's no condemnation. Just the overwhelming love and grace of God. Just do what God asks of you. No less, but no more. So, as I conclude, please take what you've heard and ask God to let it percolate over the coming days. Measure it. Weigh it. Hold on to what is good and discard the rest. And I can assure you that if you are called to respond, you will know and God will show you how. In the meantime, fan the flame, scratch the itch, follow your nose and see where God leads you. One step at a time. I would be happy to talk to any of you afterwards if you have any further questions. I'm going to be at the IJM stand over in the marketplace. And with that, thank you and God bless you.